This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author and minister Rudy Rasmus discusses his new book, Love, Period. Then PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed comes back for a second in-depth report on San Diego Comic-Con. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, which is powered by Nielsen BookScan. What's happening? Well, let's see. On the nonfiction, our top debut at number four is A Spy Among Friends, Kim Philby and the Great Betrayal. This is by Ben McIntyre. In this engaging real-life spy story, McIntyre, uh, who's written a book called Double Crawls, pulls back the curtain on the life and exploits of Kim Philby, who served for decades in Britain's intelligence community while secretly working working as a Soviet double agent. Uh, we say this is entertaining and lively, and McIntyre's account makes the best fictional thrillers seem tame. Wow. Yeah, it's quite quite some praise there uh, for this uh, starred review uh, for Ben McIntyre. And uh, we have... Uh, a couple of books, uh, not surprisingly, on Nixon on the bestseller list. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, last week, we ran an article called 40 Years of Re- uh, After Resignation, A Wave of Nixon Books, and we highlighted a couple of them. The ones that uh, they all pubbed or have pubbed uh, in July, uh, one's coming out uh, this week, which is uh, Rick Perlstein's The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan, uh, which I, I assume uh, will be on our best seller list next week mm. uh, so that's just publishing the two the two that have come out one is the uh, Nixon tapes which is at number 28 Douglas Brinkley and Luke Nichter uh, nearly 800 pages of, of transcripts from the recordings made by Nixon's voice activated taping system which was between 1971 and 1973 uh, they document the years Nixon opened relations with China negotiated the SALT one-arms agreement with the Soviet Union and won a landslide re-election victory. So that's in that book. Uh, Number 22 is The Nixon Defense, What He Knew and When He Knew It by John W. Dean from uh, Viking. Uh, Dean, uh, he was uh, Nixon's legal counsel uh, uh, during the Watergate scandal, provided key Senate testimony that helped lead to the president's uh, resignation. And in The Nixon Defense, he connects the dots, uh, quote-unquote, that have never been connected, including the revelation of how and why the Watergate break-in occurred and how deeply Nixon was involved from the beginning of the cover-up. And that's basically what we have right now for uh, nonfiction. How are we looking in fiction? Fiction, there's a lot of movement. Uh, We have a new number three, which is Fast Track by Julie Garwood. This is one of those interesting situations. Obviously, it's a popular book, a popular Mm -hmm. author, uh, sold 13,000 copies in its first week, a very respectable showing. Uh, But the PW Review is not so positive. We say that Garwood goes off the rails with this unintentionally creepy novel starring a saccharine rich girl and the 
controlling, possessive man she's inexplicably loved since she was a child. Oh, so, wow. Uh, this uh, may not necessarily do it for Garwood's fans, but they're certainly willing to pick it up and give it a try. So it's Fast Track, and it's at number three. Uh, Moving down a little bit, we have Leon Moriarty, Big Little Lies. Um, This is a suspense novel following three different women through intense situations in their lives. Uh, We haven't reviewed it yet, but I'm sure a review is forthcoming. It's at number six. A little bit further down, there's a lot happening in the late teens, early 20s. We have a new 19, a new 20, a new 22, and a new 23. Mm. So lots of these, uh, what I would call mid-list books, they're on the bestseller list, um, but not really getting quite close to uh, to number one. So just going through those a little bit. Uh, At number 19, we have Invincible by Diana Palmer. Palmer's been writing uh, romances for a very, very long time, and it shows a bit. This is a what I would call a classic plot, which is you know, about one step away from being an outdated plot. Uh, it's about a Lakota Sioux mercenary, and uh, he's helping a friend with a murder investigation, and then encounters a young woman who uh, has a photographic memory, has seen key evidence, and now must be protected, of uh. course. So this is the, that very sort of, you know, very manly man um, with with that... Uh, a savage Native American air that's kind of disparaged by more mm. current romance authors, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the you know, young woman, an innocent, um, who is both drawn to him and needing protection, needing safety. So, as I said, quite a classic. Uh, if you've read a Diana Palmer book before, you'll recognize it. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, if you look at some of the early reviews coming in on Amazon from readers, they basically say, yeah, yeah, we know this one. Mm. Um, down at number 20 is Magic Breaks by Alona Andrews. This is notable because uh, although it's the 11th book in the Kate Daniels uh, supernatural suspense series. It's the first one in hardcover, and uh, clearly the jump to hardcover is justified. Here it is on our bestseller list. Wow. Uh, Kate is uh, trying to figure out how to prevent her home territory of Atlanta from becoming a supernatural war zone. Um, she has to hold her pack together. Uh, her mate is out of town, so she's on her own. Um, and meanwhile, there's a, a fellow who's been killed, and she has to find the killer while surviving feral monsters and police political intrigue uh, and the PW review was positive saying you know, it's not just for fans um, there are plenty of character profiles there's an overview of the story to date and an additional short story tucked in the end of the book so uh, new readers will not in fact be entirely lost and so this is an uh, instance where uh, a mass market we've seen in romance or thriller or mass market writer who's come out with a number of books uh, finally gets starts getting some traction on readership and the publisher wants to break him or her out a little bit more and decides to come out with a hardcover. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's an investment. Um, right. Usually the, the first print runs might, might be a little on the low side, but printing a hardcover at any time is uh, going to be more of an investment for a publisher, mm-hmm. um, probably a little fancier cover design. There's just more investment in materials and right. warehousing and all of that. Um, but also they're asking for a bigger investment from fans. I mean, you go from a mass market title that's maybe $8 uh, to this one, which is twenty five ninety five. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it's it's challenge sure. basically. It's saying what do you, what do you think? Are you going to step up for this author that you like? And right. um, these fans are stepping up. 
And then down at number 22, we have The Fortune Hunter by Daisy Goodwin. Um, this is her second novel. Uh, it's a historical set in the Victorian period in England. And it travels the difficult protocols of Victorian-era fox hunting, as well as the even more complicated protocols of love and marriage, especially for an intelligent young woman with a fortune. Um, so she has smarts, she has money, and uh, the question is, can she find a man who loves her for herself? Uh, we say that Goodwin manages to take the reader deep inside the character's longings and flaws in a way that makes the reader root for them in an enchanting and beautifully written page turner. So they announced a first printing of 150,000 copies in the first week. It sold uh, about 3,000 of them. Cool. So yeah, we'll, we'll see how that one goes. And finally, down at the end is uh, number 23, Lucky Us by Amy Bloom. Just wanted to briefly note this. It did get a starred review from PW. Two teenage half-sisters make their way through World War II-era America in what we call an imaginative romp. Uh, Bloom transforms history to create a story of stunning invention with characters that readers will feel lucky to encounter. So that's what's happening on the fiction bestseller list. Quite a lot of notable new books, sure. as tends to happen around this time in the summer. So we'll see what happens next week. Maybe more excitement. And maybe one more Nixon. We'll see. <laughs> I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Rudy Rasmus reminds us why love is so important in every part of our lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Rudy Rasmus on the line. His new book is Love, Period. Rudy, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you, guys. So your book, titled Love, Period, is subtitled When All Else Fails. Why this title, and what is the significance to the book and to your ministry in Houston? You know, I, uh, I believe, first of all, Love is the most powerful uh, element in, in human life. And, and I see love failing a lot, primarily because um, people have the, uh, the wrong expectation. And, and what I know is a, uh, an undisclosed expectation is a premeditated resentment. So, so love, as uh, my core ethos, is really about... Um, making sure we have the tools needed to address the challenges that life can present. And so what made you decide to write this book at this time? You know, I, uh, I think ne like never before in the history, in human history, uh, do we need the, uh, the power of unconditional love. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm connected to the, um, the religious world and, and I'm I'm relatively disappointed at times as to to how um, uh, how marginalizing uh, religion can be at times. Uh, how uh, how uh, uh, our our various class distinctions in society are uh, drawing some some pretty intense lines, uh, 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 separating the haves from the have-nots. And and what I'm really advocating is uh, really the power of Loving the person in front of us like we'd want to be loved. So uh, going to your subtitle, When All Else Fails, can you give us examples as to how love uh, has kind of prevailed when all else fails? And maybe, you know, give us examples that you've used in your book. You know, um, imagine um, 
when I, when I think about all else failing, uh, I'm really taken back back to, uh, uh, to to the substitutes for for love that we we often uh, put into uh, into motion. One, um, when when money and material possessions fail us, uh, when our um, connections to power uh, and privilege fail us, uh, when uh, our um, uh, our normal responses to the challenges that life can put in front of us even fail us. You know, if our normal response is is uh, is fear, uh, inadequacy, um, you know, whatever that 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 typical response to uh, uh, to the person in front of us might have been, uh, I'm suggesting that if we uh, just really attempt to love that person in front of us uh, and and process that encounter through a lens of love, then it's a good possibility uh, we might not only have a, a different outcome, uh, but we all also might walk away uh, with, a, uh, uh, with a friend. So this sounds really intimate and personal, but you're also talking about big societal issues, about, uh, again, as you said, these class divides. And how does this translate into, into something like interacting with an entire community or into policy? You know, uh, in, in uh, chapter seven, I talk about love honoring others, and and in that chapter, uh, I uh, I recall a uh, an incident in in my city in Houston, Texas, where where for many years um, uh, many people had provided food on the streets uh, just randomly to to the homeless community, and. And I, uh, even though I, I think it's a, a good deed to uh, provide food to, to homeless men and women, uh, I've always been challenged by the notion that, you know, bringing a sandwich uh, periodically to a homeless person uh, actually meets the, the need that person uh, may have in that moment. So, so my response to a, uh, an ordinance you know, our city government uh, decided to to put an ordinance in play that that restricted and limited the uh, the uh, the the access to uh, to the community providing random food uh, to the homeless community. Well, I was challenged for that uh, for that uh, support of that ordinance, and and many uh, uh, many religious um, uh, organizations and others who historically had provided food to homeless men and women in a random, on a random basis, uh, challenged my, uh, my ethic for doing so. But I, and ultimately, uh, my position was this. You know, if we are going to love and honor the person in front of us, uh, that is, for instance, in this particular instance, the homeless community, uh, we should want the same thing for them uh, that we expect with, with our entitlement. So, for instance... When I go to a restaurant, uh, I expect that restaurant to have uh, been uh, governed, its policies to have been governed uh, in many regards by uh, the, uh, the government agencies that are responsible for monitoring and, and managing uh, the, the health code for those restaurants. I think uh, people who don't have financial resources are due the same honor. Uh, so, so ultimately, uh, love won. Uh, you know, I believe that that even though a person can't pay for a meal, 
uh, that person still deserves the same uh, integrity uh, as it relates to that meal being provided that I do when I pay for a meal. So, so in a broader community context, uh, I often say a, um, a community's, uh, let's say, greatness, for the lack of a better word, is often, for me, determined by how it treats its poorest citizen, its most marginalized citizen. And, and that is an expression uh, from my vantage point of love and action. So you're talking about supporting places like soup kitchens and uh, places, uh, for example, in New York, we have City Harvest, which goes around to a lot of uh, fast food places and sandwich shops and places like that and collects food and brings it around to soup kitchens in a very organized way so that people always know what they're getting and so that there are, there are as you said, safety ordinances in place. Absolutely. You know, we, we live in a society of neighbors and, and you know, we, we have to do our service to others uh, in a way that is responsible, respectful and even even helpful. So you discuss in your book about moving people away from conventional understandings of biblical teachings. What do you mean by that? And what's your approach? We you know when I when I think about my own journey uh, uh, to uh, to uh, the faith. You know, this is my maybe 24th year uh, as a faith practitioner. Uh, and and when, I, when I think about my, uh, my own journey, the primary reason I, uh, I was away from uh, organized religion for as long as I was, uh, was because of the, the, um, the challenges uh, I encountered in observing practitioners of organized religion. So, so the opportunity ultimately came for me to be not only a practitioner, but a leader uh, in, in, in organized religion. And subsequently, I got a chance to, to make some alterations to uh, some, some, some practices. Now, now, for me, the alterations uh, are, are, are kind of simple, and, and, and some of these alterations are practiced in, 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 in many faith practices uh, around the uh, around the world, but but for me it's as simple as L O V and E. So, for instance, the L, uh, the L for me uh, represents uh, liberation, and and I I believe love is not only uh, liberating, uh, but when it's uh, connected to a uh, committed faith practice, uh, it can not only liberate the individual, but it can lim- liberate the community. Uh, surrounding that individual, liberate that community from from practices that maybe historically uh, may have been party to marginalizing uh, that particular people group or people groups. Uh, the the O in in love for me uh, 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 represents being others focused. Now, when I think about being others focused, I'm 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 uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm really talking about uh, embracing you know not 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 necessarily going to lunch with with every people group that I might be challenged by in terms of uh, challenged with unconditional acceptance, but, but using the, uh, the mantra, just like me, this person is a human being uh, desiring and deserving unconditional love. Uh, so for instance, when I'm, when I'm typically moving around talking to groups about the, uh, the practice of being others focused, uh, I put up a, uh, a picture, a slide with maybe 75 categories of people uh, in terms of people, actions, and groups, people, action, and groups. And in that, I, uh, I, I often uh, 
tell these groups to, to determine which people or people groups on this list may have a difficult time being uh, warmly received in your uh, faith community meeting, uh, church or otherwise, uh, any, any given day. Immediately, people go to the category uh, where they may find uh, the, uh, the personally uh, the biggest challenge, you know. Uh, so, so, for instance, for me, uh, one, one people group, uh, one category on that list is pedophiles. Well, well, in the book, I uh, actually talk about uh, my uh, my daughter's encounter with being molested when she was four years old. Uh, you know, for for me, uh, based on that encounter, uh, uh, pedophiles were on that list. You know, but ultimately, uh, you know, for 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 me to to one write a book about uh, the power of unconditional love and not love the person in front of us regard in front of me, regardless to uh, to what their offense might have been, uh, uh, moves me outside of my practice of unconditional love. The V in this love acrostic is vulnerability and also veracity. And veracity is, is that commitment to the, the truth, to your truth, uh, that, uh, that really speaks to who you are uh, instinctively. So, so for me, vulnerability is uh, a willingness to um, to not only show my scars, uh, but to to be okay with your scars. You know, and as we move through life, you know, we're we're going to be scarred. We're going to have encounters that that make marks on us that that only those encounters can make. And and when we when we allow others to see uh, not only who we are but what we have been through. Uh, we, we are allowing vulnerability in that moment to uh, to to rule over our our fear of disclosing who we are innately and instinctively, and, and and the essence of that is ultimately living out our our truth. And when we live our truth, that transparency is is what ultimately speaks to the person in front of us. And, and tell that person that they are okay, uh, regardless to what they've been through, uh, and regardless to what someone has told them in their lives uh, that diminished their own value. The E uh, in this acrostic, uh, for me, represents uh, engaging life, and and that's what I do every day. My my spiritual gift, I have a spiritual gift of hanging out, and. And that spiritual gift of hanging out really uh, uh, empowers me to uh, to be with people in in every uh, in every context. Uh, you know, in this book love period, I I, uh, I talk about my encounters with 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 all sorts of people. As a matter of fact, we profile maybe uh, eight to ten stories of, of friends of mine from every walk of life, from a, uh, 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 a an Episcopal priest who was. Um, put out of the priesthood to a uh, to a former uh, pimp who is now an artist and and everyone in between and in the midst of that you know engaging uh, life uh, and this encounter uh, with life through these um, these very diverse uh, people uh, I, uh, I I experience have experienced love in some amazing ways. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. 
PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Rudy Rasmus, author of Love, Period. You have enlisted pop stars like Beyonce and Tina Knowles to help aid your hunger ministry. Are they members of your church? And just just curious, what are the attributes and downfalls of having celebrities as part of a congregation? You know, I've actually known uh, Tina for many, many years, uh, and subsequently uh, I have known Beyonce since she was a baby and growing up. And uh, and when she was a teenager, we actually started the ministry, my wife and I, uh, me in Houston, Texas. And and I'm telling you, when she was a, a little girl, I, everyone around her had an an idea that that something big was going to happen in this young lady's life. Uh, well, I remember when she was about 16 years old, uh, she uh, she told me, you know, you know, Pastor Rudy, when I grow up. Uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do some things, uh, and and I'm not gonna forget this uh, this mission uh, that we are a part of. And and I'll tell you uh, from from our earliest success with uh, with Destiny's Child, um, she and her mother and family have been uh, incredible supporters. You know, so so uh, in terms of downfall. Uh, there's no real downfall. What I what I tell folk all the time is uh, human beings. I mean, su- I mean, entertainers. Entertainers are 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 human, and uh, regardless to how big their platform is, uh, it just means that they're just that much more human. And 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 often I I, uh, I see where she is often uh, critiqued and criticized and even judged. You know, for her, uh, for her music, for her uh, performances, and and you know, my position is entertainers entertain, and 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 at the core of an entertainer's entertainment is not necessarily who that person is instinctively. You know, mm-hmm. uh, an actor may, can t- can play a role, uh, and that act when that director says cut. That actor uh, takes off that that uh, that wardrobe, uh, puts on their street clothes, and goes home to be a mother, a sister, a daughter, a friend, uh, a companion, uh, and and in the midst of that, uh, I just I've I've noticed through uh, through uh, Beyonce's life uh, that you know the bigger the platform, uh, the more critique. But I will tell you this, you know, over these years, they have uh, contributed millions to uh, to the work uh, that we have done in the uh, hung- hunger and homeless community, hungry and homeless communities. Uh, I have, um, you know, every uh, time I've actually made a request over the years, they have always met that request uh, with with grace and and support. And subsequently, we have um, collectively been able to uh uh, create hunger, anti-hunger initiatives all over the world. Uh, we have uh, built uh, housing for previously homeless men and women here in Houston, Texas. Uh, uh, developed a center that provides an incredible space 
for senior adults uh, every week, and and I'm saying the list goes on. But but they are um, they're incredible people uh, when they come to church. You know, uh, you know Tina, uh, the mother, is in church often uh, here with us. Uh, Beyonce lives in New York with her husband Jay Z now, and and doesn't make it uh, back to Houston. You know, for too much socializing, but but uh, but definitely when they come through town, we get a chance to see them. So let's let's talk about materialism while we're talking about people who've uh, accomplished all of this worldly success. You've devised an interesting acronym for uh, people who are very focused on materialism. <laughs> yeah, I, I call it being pimp proof. <laughs> uh, you know, the, when I think about um, the. Uh, um, the environment of 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 pimping, and you know, uh, my my background. For instance, my early adult years, I owned and operated a uh, what I call a borderline bardello with my dad, and so I was actually raised to run that business, uh, to 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 run a business that unfortunately um, uh, made its its uh, revenue on uh, misogynistic practices on on what I would consider today, looking back, on hatred towards uh, towards women. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's not a, it wasn't a good place, but it was a place where I ultimately reconciled uh, what uh, was good and what wasn't good about, um, about life. And the one thing I uh, really uh, discovered in that place was, um, you know, you know, people who are... Uh, completely immersed in uh, materialistic pursuits um, are, are, are people who often miss uh, the, uh, uh, the beauty of, of the, uh, an authentic relationship with another human being. And, 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 and this, um, this, you know, this materialistic pursuit often uh, overrides and takes, I mean, takes precedence over Everything in a person's life. Uh, in the book Love Period, I talk about Craig, Craig Bowie, a, long, a dear friend and good friend, who uh, uh, um, for many years in his early adult life, uh, 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 you know, was a pimp, and he had uh, you know people working the streets uh, for his material gain, and 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 the only way I've discovered in terms of 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 avoiding. Now, now, I will say this, you know, all of us, uh, because of our bent towards uh, uh, materialism uh, at times, uh, all of us can, can be pimps. You know, we, we, we can, uh, all of us can, can find ourselves uh, so uh, engaged in the materialistic pursuit uh, that we, we can, can literally forget uh, the, uh, the importance of the relationships of those around us, you know. But but I uh, I, w- I will say this, you know, um, when we begin to focus uh, our individual energy on um, on helping versus uh, hurting uh, those around us, then ultimately we uh, we can see uh, how being pimp-proofed uh, really means that we are prioritizing. Uh, the those around us, the needs of those around us, uh, and and in the process, watching even our own needs adjust, and that's the beauty of of uh, of, of 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 addressing and and helping 
uh, others through through charitable activity. Uh, really, it's it's when we begin to take the focus off of our own uh, needs and begin to focus uh, some energy on the needs of those around us, our needs begin to diminish to the point where they're no longer uh, stalking us uh, in our sleep and in our waking hours. Now, while I was reading through that chapter of your book, um, I noticed that a lot of your suggestions in there and uh, elsewhere in the book as well um, seem to be suggestions for pastors and other leaders as well as for individual people in the community. So I was wondering who you see as the audience for this book specifically. You know, I uh, I actually see uh, individuals who, who want uh, to experience uh, more love and life and uh i do see uh the uh, the religious uh practitioner and people engaged in religious pursuits uh also uh as a as a as a potential audience for this book you know when, when um my uh my life over the last 22 years as a as a pastor in uh in a uh, in a large church community context uh has has Often shown me that uh, that really it's the individual life uh, that we touch moving through lives uh, that ultimately speak uh, more of our to our legacy uh, as a uh, as a fellow citizen. You know, my auntie Mamie uh, told me years ago. She said, um, uh, "Baby, I live my eulogy every day," and and she owned a a little grocery store uh, in in a in a predominantly African-American neighborhood in Houston, Texas, for many years. And in that grocery store, I, uh, I saw uh, more, um, more faith practice uh, than I've seen in many churches. And, you know, uh, in that grocery store, I saw hungry people getting fed. Uh, I saw uh, people who were marginalized uh, because of um, uh, multiple factors. Either they were... Uh, Constantly drunk and, and couldn't stand up, or, or 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 for whatever reason marked in the community as as the person who was outside. I would I would watch those people come into her grocery store and be treated with uh, dignity and respect. Well, when when she got to the end of her life uh, and it was time to to uh, prepare her funeral program, she wrote her own program and she told me she said. Uh, when it's, when I do that, don't don't let people line up talking about, you know, how much they loved me and how much I meant to them. She said the person, you know, whose lives I touched, the people whose lives I touched, uh, will have already heard my eulogy. And and you know, so every day, you know, what what I do is move through life, uh, living living literally, living my eulogistic remarks. Uh, based on every encounter with with the person in front of me. Mm, That's a wonderful story. Uh, You know, I wanted to ask you, we've been talking about uh, religion, uh, the church, but we haven't talked anything. I wanted to ask about a biblical reference. Uh, This is Paul's letter to Corinthians that you refer to in your book. Um, Tell us a little bit about the letter, and then tell us how it refers to you in your ministry. You know, the... uh, uh, the letter is is to the Corinthian church about love, and and you know it's First Corinthians thirteen, and and often called a love chapter, and you know and and too often limited to our um, our, our romantic relationships, but 
But I uh, I see this uh, this particular uh, verse in in a broader context and and even a broader application because because let's look at a couple of those points. Uh, one, uh, love never gives up, and and I believe that authentic love uh, doesn't quit because it gets hard. Uh, love cares more for others than self. You know, well, you know, you know, that is a uh, you know if. If we begin to care for others, now not to the to the point where uh, we we ultimately become either codependent or put ourselves in 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 a, abusive uh, in the pathway of abusive relationships, but if we ultimately uh, embrace uh, others uh, in in the way that we want to be embraced, then 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 something magical happens. Uh, love doesn't want what it doesn't have, and and that's you know at the core of of envy and jealousy is uh, wanting something that is actually uh, in someone else's possession, and and that's never a good a good end. Um, pride, love doesn't strut, uh, doesn't have a swelled head, and pride is always a uh, a, a challenging a challenging uh, um, environment for anybody and the people with that person, you know, um, uh, doesn't force itself on others, uh, you know, isn't always me first. And, and how about anger? doesn't fly off the handle. Uh, when we uh, uh, um, uh, approach people uh, with, the, uh, with the same respect that we want to be approached with, then we, we take a different route than anger normally provides. Uh, doesn't keep the, uh, keep score of the wrongs of others. Uh, doesn't revel when others are, are, are challenged. Um, it, but here's, here's the key. Takes pro- uh, pleasure in flowering the truth. And, and, and what happens when we take pleasure in flowering the truth? We're saying, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna celebrate, uh, what is, what is real and true uh, versus what is rumor and conjecture, and and here, here's the part that that um, uh, uh, that that really resonated with me in this uh, in this passage in this passage. Uh, love trusts uh, God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. And and the and the one verse uh, in this. Uh, in this in this text that that really resonates with me is love never fails and 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 it doesn't. I'm alive today because uh, the people around me never gave up on me in spite of uh, what I might been might have been expressing as my human expression in that moment. We've been talking with Rudy Rasmus. You can find his book Love Period in stores right now. Rudy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been great talking with you today. It's been a real pleasure. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed comes back for the second half of his Comic-Con report, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed brings us even more news from San Diego's Comic-Con. 
Hey, Calvin, how are you? I'm back. You're back. So last week we talked about, uh, you gave us an overview of Comic-Con. Yeah. We, we mm-hmm. talked about some of the highlights, some of the authors. And yeah. we wanted to talk a little bit more, first of all, because it was way too short, uh, a discussion with you. And secondly, there was something that I wanted to ask. Mm. Um, all right. And that was a, a report in the New York Times about um, how no one spends any money at Comic-Con. <laughs> yes, yes. And what, what is, like, what what... Kind of well, that got the nerds all upset. Believe me, and and <laughs> sure. and, and, and others, even uh, myself included. Other, I, I, we're, we're, we were a little baffled. And for those that maybe don't re- realize, at the times, and I think it was on Saturday or Sunday during right. uh, Comic Con, which runs basically Wednesday through Sunday, uh, there was an article in the New York Times, uh, essentially saying that, oh yeah, there's 130,000. You know, you know, comic book, movie, and TV fan, pop culture fans, right. really here at the show. But you know, um, and I'm not sure where their research came from. Uh, you know, they don't spend any money. You know, uh, and they don't. Nerds don't have money. Yeah, well, it's essentially, <laughs> they were saying that, that yeah, you know, it's, like, it's kind of a bunch of fanboys, and they're all camping out in one room, and you know, and, and you know, basically eating on the street. Mm-hmm. You know, you know crouched in the corner somewhere um you know with, with a fast food takeout and they don't spend much money and 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 the products that they that they do spend it on you know they're not they're they're soft sold and they're they're really not out in front you know they aren't a big you know naming rights deal well that's interesting number one uh there's been other studies that contradict that uh, particularly by uh, the, the San Diego, which for many years actually treated Comic-Con much in the same way that this article did. Mm-hmm. I mean, for many years, um, you know, Comic-Con was not very well known among citizens of San Diego. It was, it, its reputation sort of grew elsewhere. Um, I remember going, in, uh, you know, say 10 years ago, when it's, there was still 80,000 people coming. Mm. And uh, I knew some San Diegans, and they would say, oh, yeah, well, yeah, I'm, no, I, I haven't gone to Comic-Con. Uh, why do you ask? <laughs> I said, well, it's just the biggest pop culture you know, festival in North America, and incredibly influential, blah, blah, blah. But um, about three years ago, uh, when um, the, t- the, the, the festival kept selling out, I mean, the sell, the, I think I said last week 90 seconds, and I, that was an era. It's really 90 minutes, you know. Basically, 130,000 tickets sell out in an hour and a half. Um, wow. But that's that's super intense. It's incredible, of course. Really, yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you know that there are people who have scripts in their browsers that will just keep absolutely, refreshing. Until absolutely, they, and yeah. don't even ask about hotel reservations. Oh, I'm you sure. Know, they Years they go advance. even faster. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it, about that time, actually, the um, the organizing committee of Comic Con, which is a nonprofit organization, you know, all of its money goes back into Mm. Um, promoting the uh, the lively arts, the, uh, and um, that's when actually there are a number of cities in the area, and actually a little bit outside of the area, that would love to have Comic Con come to their t- uh, uh, to their town, and um, the Staples Center in L.A., right. the big uh, com- the um, convention center in Anaheim. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, the, uh, there was even some Las Vegas uh, Vegas um, wow. interests. And they went on one of those, you know, sort of dog and pony shows uh, around to different venues. Uh, about that time, um, uh, some of the things that the Comic-Con had been uh, lobbying the city council about, and you know, in addition to the um, 
through the convention center there, uh, as well as um, increasing hotels, because that's the other incredible problem with Comic-Con, is getting a hotel. Even mm. if you get a ticket, you may have to sleep on the street. Mm. Actually, you may sleep on the street anyway, even if you have a hotel, if you're trying to get into Hall H and see a 30-second uh, film clip. Sounds like the problem, hotel problems in South By as well, staying in uh, uh, You know, in South Austin. By has, on a much smaller scale, yeah. it, it does seem to have some of those problems, but um, but really, Comic-Con is, is unique. There's, yeah. there's a vast numbers, and the, the hotel situation there doesn't even begin to address it. Right. Uh, if you want to be anywhere within, say, you know, a half an hour of the convention center, now you can still get rooms much further out. And on the island, there's an island there, Coronado, I believe it is, mm-hmm. and you can actually take a ferry in, but it's, that's kind of tough for a, right. for a reporter. Um, but uh, since that time, for instance, uh, the old days, they used to say that the city council used to say, well, nobody paid. San Diego was more used to trade shows where the professionals were on expense accounts. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, once again, five or six fanboys in a room, you know, all eating burgers. Well, that's much changed. Hollywood has comes in and spends huge bucks, uh, Hollywood and TV. And we're seeing more and more bigger uh, brands who are there, particularly if they're connected in any way with pop culture. And so we went, you know, some of us who've been coming for years and been working against these stereotypes, uh, uh, sort of were shooting emails around. And uh, one guy in particular, Steve Rotterdam, who is um, a former, actually, former VP of sales at DC Comics, he's since left. He has his own um, uh, a marketing agency and actually gave a panel at Comic-Con this year on pop culture marketing. And he actually issued, a, put out a letter that was ran, uh, ran on the beat, uh, my colleague Heidi McDonald's blog, uh, and I think he sent it as a letter to the New York Times. I don't know whether it, whether it was actually ran or not. But basically, he kind of addressed all of these questions. Uh, first of all, these are old. That's old news that has been thrown out by other studies. Even even the San Diego Chamber of Commerce uh, has a much larger economic impact uh, on uh, San Diego. But also, they talked about how you brand and market at Comic Con is very different. Uh, pop culture fans are very intense. Uh, they're actually very critical of the things that they love. Um, the hard sell can backfire, and t- uh, particularly in an area of social media, Absolutely. Uh, and cause the absolute lampooning of mm-hmm. the brands. You have to be very careful. You cannot put the brand above the stuff that pop culture fans love. They won't stand for it. You've got to come up with a way to assist them in in reaching the stuff or getting the stuff that they that they love. So uh, Steve, I thought, wrote a very measured response saying this is a stereotype that was thrown out. A little more research. I think you'd come up with some other information. And the soft sell that the article ridiculed was exactly just the right way to approach pop culture fans. Mm. Right. I mean, you, you can't hard sell. It's like promoted tweets. You know, you're, you're going you're gonna to see something like that and people will just endlessly make fun of it. But when you have Absolutely. somebody... Um, like I'm not going to remember his name, Orlando, is it Orlando Jones, who's uh, who's uh, in the Sleepy Hollow. Um, oh yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so he's yes. out there with his own he's Twitter a pitch account. Man too. <laughs> he's totally a pitch man, but at the same time, he's having fun interacting sure. with fans, chatting with people. I I know people who got direct Twitter replies sure. from him who just mm. were like walking on clouds all day, and that's the kind of engagement that will really draw people in and make them Absolutely. interested. Absolutely, that's one of the things. I mean, he was actually one because Sleepy Hollow actually had an off-site event right near Petco Park, mm-hmm. where you could kind of wander through a recreation of the. The whole, the whole place. Wow. But those kinds of things, the soft sell 
in some way a brand that felicitates you know your connection with the stuff that you're interested in, whether it's a book or a film that's the stuff that pop culture fans like plus pop culture fans don't have expense accounts right and i tell you it's a family event as in crazy as i've described it and as intensely uh dense as the floor is i'm amazed at the number of families mm-hmm. really? and the uh it is really a disability um uh, uh, what's I don't know what the right word it's is. It's accessible. Uh, accessible for the disabled. I mean, I'm astonished. They won't let you bring rolling luggage on the floor, but people are in their motorized carts, and and I saw a woman with a walker and um, a mature, apparent uh, female nerd <laughs> with uh, with a walker on the floor. I was afraid for in a river of people, and she couldn't have been happier. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pop culture fans, they I, I find it hard to believe that they had only come up with $600. Per, you, you can't get a hotel for $600. Yeah. Right. I mean, you're so, spending on the hotel. You're spending on the plane ticket to get there because these people don't live yeah. in San Diego, as Absolutely. you said. Absolutely. Um, and then you're spending on your admission fee and on food while you're there. And you know, food and while you're the, traveling is And one no other thing that, that Steve uh, brought up is that pop culture fans, particularly the ones coming to um, to Comic Con, they they're there to spend their money on the exhibition floor. Mm-hmm. They're looking for cool stuff among the vendors that exhibit there. So yes, that's where they're spending their money. And they, yes, they may not be spending it as much in the restaurants around it. But you know, I'll tell you, even if it isn't a Comic Con attendee that's spending money, the Gas Lamp District, which is the the area around the, the Convention right. Center, is packed right. every single night. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, the, the, they, I, you can't discount the economic impact of Comic-Con on San Diego. Mm. Well, that's very persuasive. So, <laughs> so, and how many to, T-shirts do you have? I got a few, believe me. I, I, believe me, I paid my, uh, I, I, I give back <laughs> to the Comic-Con you, you paid your exhibitor Comic-Con class, tags. for sure. I, yes. So what do you think Comic-Con could do to maybe bring in um, people from the San Diego area and encourage them to exhibit within the convention? I mean, that flow well, can go both ways. Absolutely. Well, I think there's a lot more of that now than it was uh, in the, the previous times I was talking about when I got there 10 years more or 10 years or more ago um it's a very different uh relationship now with the city over the last i would say three to five years this has changed dramatically uh i mean when i came other than a few there were some sort of signs up on the streets that said hey comic-con's here but now what you see is all the businesses in the area i mean uh, like i we stay at the hilton and there's, you know, everyone's got a T-shirt on with some pop culture theme on it. Mm. But I mean, you see that that's everywhere for all the stores all over the place, uh, whether you're at a restaurant or a bar or, of course, the first place everyone goes, well, at least the media people go when they come to San Diego, Ralph's, the big supermarket chain. Mm-hmm. You go there and you get your dry goods and your munchies and the stuff you're going to stash in your hotel room when <laughs> so you're good. banging out a story <laughs> at, you know, yeah. at four o'clock in the morning for an East Coast deadline, you know, right. and you need something to crunch on. So all of these places now they're done up with you know uh with posters banners all of the employees are wearing t-shirts of one pop culture thing event brand or another it's a much different um relationship now and i would have to say that the the number of san diego natives that are coming there is is probably much much higher than Mm -hmm. it was when i first started coming so the times was really just behind the times yeah i kind of hate to say that but yeah it seems as though that they were in a kind of a time warp you know, it happens at a pop culture festival, and uh, somehow or other, they're they're still locked in notions that were people were talking about ten years ago about right. Comic Con. I mean, this idea that that fans don't have money 
it, every single movie in the theaters with tickets going for nearly twenty dollars a piece yeah. and people going back to see them again and again is a nerd movie. You know, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I th- it really seems a confusion over how they spend money, uh, confusing that with the notion of whether they're spending it at all, right? And also just a confusion about needing a nuance with how you handle brands in different situations. You know, it's it's not a one size fits all deal. Now, you were also going to talk about uh, some of the initiatives that have come out of of there. Yeah. I mean, there was, well, obviously, I mean, once again, uh, there are lots of comics at Comic-Con, right. and it still is the number one location for announcing new products. Now, some even some comics publishers, because, trying to beat the, the glut of information and also to beat the movie industry, which tends to dominate the news coming out of Comic-Con, uh, you know, a lot of publishers release information just before Comic-Con and mm-hmm. just after Comic-Con. That said, all of these new projects and their artists are right there, available to the media, available right. to the fans, more importantly. And so, yes, there's lots of books, there's lots of graphic novels, there's lots of comics, this stuff to, to, to be announced. And, um, and there's a great intersection with the prose book world as well. In fact, we've got a story that's going to run uh, in, uh, in, in the print PW, basically about Comics publishers who've got big name prose authors doing mm-hmm. comics pro- uh, projects. We mentioned, uh, I think, one at our last, the last time I was here in our last exciting episode. Right. <laughs> I think we had, well, I mentioned Chuck Polinick, who's right. doing a graphic novel sequel to Fight Club mm-hmm. uh, for Dark Horse. But in addition to that, we're coupling him, we're doing a little story about Dynamite Entertainment um, uh, had, a, had a panel at Comic-Con introducing Quentin Tarantino, hmm, who really? is doing... Now, Quentin Tarantino has already done a graphic novel adaptation of uh, Django Unchained, his over-the-top, you know, um, right. slave-turned-gunslinger movie with uh, Jamie Foxx. I have to admit I liked it. Um, uh, <laughs> but what he's uh, proposing to do now for Dynamite is a big mashup of Django Unchained and Zorro, which um, Dynamite, one of the things that Dynamite did when uh, Dynamite is about 10 years old, it was celebrating his 10 year anniversary, mm-hmm. uh, launched by a guy by the name of Nick Barucci. And what Nick does is, what he's done, he's brought back a number of older um, comics properties and relaunched them with new creative teams. And they're, they've getting, you know, even from the Lone Ranger to Zorro. So they, they're going to do a, an interesting team up uh, of Django. And Zorro in the Old West. So, wow. uh, uh, with Quentin Tarantino overseeing this project. So, that looks good. Avatar Press, which does a variety, uh, wide variety of fantasy and horror comics, has, got, has a George R.R. R. Martin project uh, that they're launching. Unfortunately, I've lost the exact name of the exact novel that he's going to be adapt, uh, adapting. But they already do um, a number of, uh, excuse me, actually, Dynamite also does some. Um, adaptations, I believe, of the Game of Thrones mm-hmm. comics adaptations. Of yeah, that. Daniel Abraham's been writing those. I think ah, who's, there you go. who's a great mm-hmm. author in his own right. Bingo. Uh, and uh, as I suspect he's one of the like three people in the entire world who knows how the whole thing is going to end. But every time I ask him about it, he won't tell me. There you go. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and apparently George R. R. Martin has gotten tired of fans asking him. I'm, sh- I'm sure he has. Oh, sure. I'm sure so, he has. Uh, but uh, so that's there. And then, of course, I mentioned. 
earlier that Chuck Palahniuk is doing his sequel uh, at Dark Horse. So uh, we're going to do a piece about, you know, how do you get these guys uh, uh, to do a comic book and what's it involved. And uh, so check out PW and, and you'll find more about it. But I'd also like to mention that um, Scott McCloud, if you're not familiar with Scott McCloud, well-known comics theoretician, uh, wrote a trilogy of books about the aesthetics and the fundamentals of, of was it uh, inventing comics, understanding comics, mm-hmm. making comics. He's he's like wants to take a break from nonfiction. He has he's publishing his first work of fiction. Uh, it's going to publish in January or February of 2015. But he was at Comic Con, did a special panel. Uh, I got a chance to chase him down on the floor um, at the booth of his publisher for a second. He had galleys, amazing galleys of his book, The Sculptor, which is coming out, um, as I said, in 2015. A wonderful book, uh, brilliant drawings, uh, the story of an artist who makes a deal with death to be able to create whatever he wants to create. And hmm. it's a common, it's a look at, at the compulsion to make art, uh, the nature of love and the relentless approach of death. So wow. uh, be in store for this. It's going to be, it's an awful book. It's really Scott, Scott's uh, putting, putting into practice all of the theoretical stuff he talks about in right. his great trilogy. He says enough already. It's time to actually do it. And he, I mean, he's, he's done fiction before, but this is his first book of fiction in quite a few years. So everybody's looking forward to it. It's great to get a chance to talk to him about it. Wow. Well, it sounds like a lot of good stuff has come out there. Thank you so much for sharing some of it with us, Calvin. Anytime. Anytime. That's what we do is talk about comedy. (laughs) (laughs) It's always great to have you on the show. And now a final word from our sponsors. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. Join the community of book lovers at Publishers Weekly Radio every Friday and on demand at iHeartRadio.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Gabrielle Weston, author of Dirty Work. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show, 